This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Please, uh, as we wrap up, uh, don't forget to write down your questions and pass them down to the points where they can be collected so that we can progress pretty quickly at this point to the question-answer period. I've been asked to try to wrap this up, which I suppose means provide a, a summary and an appraisal of what's been said. This is certainly not an easy task, given all of the information and interpretations. We've had a lot of very interesting presentations uh, during the afternoon. I certainly can't hope to do justice to all of this material. Let me just run down the list quickly for you. Bernard Wood and Bill Kimball spoke to the difficulties associated with recognizing and studying the genus Homo. And I agree, of course, we we all realize that the record is imperfect. Bill Kimball also filled us in on the important new discoveries from Lady Gararu in Ethiopia, earliest homo now, a small mandible at 2.8 million years. Uh, That's very fine material to have. Dan Lieberman spoke uh, about hunting and gathering as facilitated by double B and B, brawn and brains, and of course the interactions between those two. Uh, I did the best I could to tell you a little bit about the fascinating discoveries from Demenisi, first humans out of Africa into Asia. Uh, Pascal Gagneur uh, gave us a little shift of gears, which was very fine indeed. He spoke about the sialic acids and the possibility that an immune mechanism could have driven speciation speciation in Homo uh, between two and three million years ago. Steve Churchill spoke to endemism, the importance of endemism in southern Africa, and he spoke again about olive baboons as a possible model for Homo erectus. Carol Ward uh, again spoke to deficiencies in the fossil record. Uh, There aren't very many postcranial remains for earlier homo. That's the case. We do the best we can, or she does the best she can. (laughs) Leslie Aiello um, gave us her latest synthetic thinking on life history patterns and hominins, spoke to the importance, probably, of cooperative behavior. Certainly, I agree. Herman Panzer spoke again about energy, uh, as Dan Lieberman had done earlier. Um, A little bit of point and counterpoint. Herman spoke about the Hadza project. Uh, The Hadza turned out not to be so energy expensive after all. Herman also spoke to the benefits of fat, which is uh, a fine thing. So... (laughs) Let me end, I don't want to wrap up at any great length, uh, but let me end on, a, on, a, on an optimistic note. Uh, yes, the fossil record is imperfect, and we've all known that for a long time, but it is getting better. 
we do in fact have a, a huge amount of information. There are literally hundreds of hominin fossils in the record, and we now have some very sophisticated techniques that we can use to study them. This is progress. Uh, our understanding of human or hominin evolution uh, as it is now in 2016 is very different from what was thought uh, about the hominins 50 years ago. We are making progress. Uh, Leslie Aiello said that she was pleased she wasn't born a Neanderthal. I suppose we all are. But at the same time, we now know uh, that we all share genes with the Neanderthals, two or three percent uh, at least. We didn't know that ten years ago. So you see, things are not so bad after all. <laughs> Okay, well, we've now reached the question and answer period, and I'm um, madly sorting through questions down here. Uh, but um, uh, I've got some questions directed at the speakers in the first half of the uh, symposium, and um, I'll call you each down <coughs> and uh, uh, grill you with the, the questions sort of one by one. So uh, why don't we begin with Pascal, if you would come up. I saw a few good ones in here for you. Okay. Uh, so first question reads, uh, do you have any idea what the pathogen could be that was driving the sialic acid shift, um, the sexual selection? It's a two-parter. Do you want them one at a time, or you want me to hit you with both of them? Okay, you can take them both? All right. Uh, number two, is it possible to retrieve uh, glycomolecules from fossils that are greater than two to three million years old? Great question. Uh, which pathogen might have driven the change in sialic acid? I mentioned one possibility, malaria. Another very intriguing possibility is actually pathogens from the many species of prey animals that were being slaughtered. If you slaughter an animal barehanded with stone tools, you're likely to have a lot of scratches and cut, and cut yourself. So I, I don't have a good candidate, but there is no shortage of pathogens known to bind sialic acid. Tellingly, the ones that bind pig silic acids don't bind human silic acids. So E. coli, there's a famous E. coli that makes pigs very sick. It cannot infect us because it's not looking for the silic acid we have. So I think the slaughtering and hunting connection as a top predator, your pathogen regime really changes, especially when you start transporting meat. The second question was, can you retrieve a silic acid or bits thereof in fossils? The good news is yes. Actually, Ajit and his team looked at the Neanderthal-type specimen powder left over after DNA extraction um, and found that, just like humans, it, it also had only the, NA, the AC, the new 5-AC silic acids. Uh, Anne Bergfeld, uh, who went back to Germany, a former postdoc in the Varaki lab, has been able to find traces of silic acid in bones from East Africa provided by Mivliki that are 3 million years old. So we hope that we might actually get at fossil silic acid, which are the size of smaller than one base of DNA. So you don't need the long chain. Okay, well, you're, you're not off the hook yet. Okay. Uh, one more question for you. Uh, roughly 15% of infertile couples have an unknown cause. First, could female testing of male sperm account for part of this? And two, could tests be developed to diagnose? So that's an interesting idea, looking forward or to the present. We have actually uh, just found evidence for 
the presence of that antigenic salic acid on sperm of only fertility patients, not normal fertile men. And we find the presence of antibodies against it in the fluid washed from, uh, from the endometrium of, of women undergoing fertility treatment. So there is the distinct possibility of a very delayed liability of abolishing part of what used to be self that is now seen as non-self. I have no further uh, uh, questions for the defendant. Um, so, um, Bernard Wood, we'll call you up. Does using the concept of adaptive grade as a means of recognizing genera increase the taxonomic problems caused by homoplasies? For example, the genus Paranthropus may be polyphyletic. Yes, and I agree. Uh, Dr. Lieberman, come on down. So uh, one person asks, how much does culture affect anatomy? For example, texting with thumbs, does that increase that representation in the brain? Oi, oi, oi. It's an interesting question, actually, because um, um, there's, there's two kinds of evolution that's going on. There's... Um, you know, the evolution by natural selection, the sort of biological evolution that we think about all the time. But cultural evolution is also a very important kind of evolution. And, and uh, over the last, um, I would say, 20, 30 years, there's been an increasing imp- appreciation about the interactions between cultural evolution and biological evolution. So a good example might be um, that um, as humans started moving into temperate zones, right, we started having to deal with colder nights and um, we evolved... Um, the ability to make fire and clothing, <clears throat> but that in turn permitted selection for um, opportunities for selection to act on other aspects of our phenotype, for example, maybe skin color um, that could then respond to those to those um, to those uh, environmental challenges so there 's a strong, important interaction between cultural and biological evolution. There are no simple rules about them, but they're they 're important now whether or not texting is going to cause um, your thumbs to change, that would only be the case if, A, there was a heritable variation in how you texted um, that not only um, uh, maybe improved your performance in terms of texting, but also affected your reproductive success. And my my guess is, for example, yesterday I was going to class, I was rushing to get to class, and there was some undergraduate who was texting while walking on the stairs, and I suspect he might have been lowering his chances... (laughs) Of surviving and reproducing. So, so you might argue that actually that the, if there's a genetic proclivity to want to text in the first place, it might lower your reproductive success. But then again, there's Tinder and all those other things, so I don't know. Hold on, more questions for you, Dan. Um, do you consider food processing to be cooking? Uh, so, like, I, I take it the chopping and uh, uh, grinding you were talking about. And when did cooking with fire begin? Good question. Okay, so I would say that cooking is a form of food processing. That's the way we formally define it. So there's mechanical food processing and thermal food processing and chemical food processing. So, so, uh, so it is one of several important forms of food processing. The evidence as to when cooking became important is a, it, well, let's just say it's a, it's a hot topic. It's a hugely debated. Um, there, 
the oldest evidence that I know of that archaeologists accept for fire, that is, you know, we accept as being sort of human-made, that, um, that couldn't be a brush fire, etc., is about one million years old from Van der Werk Cave um, in, uh, in southern Africa. Um, there's some older possible sites, and they're, they're debated, um, but it's not really until about, um, about 400,000 years ago, actually, with sort of archaic homo, homo heidelbergensis, whatever you want to call it, that we begin to see regular evidence of cooking. So, so the, the question really is, is absence of evidence evidence of absence? And, um, and there's sort of a big debate about that. Um, I tend to um, think that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of effort, effort to find early cooking in the archaeological record, and I suspect that the absence of evidence really is evidence for absence, but uh, that's, that's highly debated, certainly. But that said, there's no question that when cooking became important, it had a major, again, another evidence of, of cultural biological interaction, had really major effects on our biology and transformed our biology in all kinds of ways. And, and I highly recommend you read uh, Richard Wrangham's book, Catching Fire, if you want a nice, nice account of that. So, so cooking is important. When it ero- uh, evolved, eh, um, if you ask 10 people, you'll get, I don't know, 10 answers. If Homo originated about 3.3 million years ago, why do you think that fossil evidence of Homo would be non-existent compared to Australopiths from the same time? Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, and I also think that they'll be very hard to recognize at that time. Um, one of the things we understand since Darwin is that species very close to branching points should be expected to look a lot more like each other than they look like their respective descendants. So the further back in time we go to a root, the more difficult it is going to be to distinguish the species on diverging branches. Um, But I am happy to be prepared to accept Australopithecus as a stone tool maker, if that's what the evidence is going to suggest. And let's not forget that uh, brain size increase did not start with Homo. Uh, The mean brain size for Australopithecus is fully 30% bigger than a chimpanzee's. And that is not a small amount. So something is going on that's driving brain size earlier than what we think in the genus Homo. Whether that is tied to culture, I haven't the clue, and and, uh, that is obviously an area for investigation. Some argue for the placement of Homo rudolfensis and Homo habilis in the genus Australopithecus. I'm looking at you, Bernard. (laughs) (laughs) What what would you say to them? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you. (laughs) Since you asked. Um... You see this, this title up here? It says, Origins of the Genus Homo. A genus is a taxonomic uh, category. Homo is a taxon. Let's say that we follow the, the prescription that um, Australopithecus, I'm sorry, that, that Homo habilis and Homo rudolfensis are primitive enough in their adaptive suite that they're much closer to some Australopithecus ancestor than they are to Homo sapiens. And we take them out of the genus Homo for that reason. We could put them in Australopithecus. We could come up with another genus. It doesn't matter. 
The problem is, is that doing that exercise does not actually move them off the tree branch that leads to us. That is a separate question relating to monophyly. And we can move the taxonomic boundary between the genus Homo and the genus Australopithecus until the cows come home. But until and unless we have solid evidence that they do not belong at the root of the lineage, we actually haven't addressed the interesting question, which is the origin of a lineage, not of a taxon. Dr. Reitmeier, if all the specimens from the Dominici site are classified as the same species, how can we explain the great variation in them? What are the implications if these specimens are classified as one? Should we reconsider the existing taxonomy within the genus Homo? Well, indeed, one of the big questions at Dominici uh, has been since we had Skull 5 come out, uh, one of the last items in 2005, how indeed there could be such a lot of variation within uh, the assemblage, as we refer to it from Demonisi. Uh, we did not start with the assumption that just one species is represented. Uh, we tried to reach that conclusion by working through a lot of material. Um, we did resampling analyses, which I don't really want to talk about at this point. Um, there are a number of them, and they all point to the same conclusion, that variability or variation within the Demonici sample as nearly as we can assess it from the body part in question, teeth, mandibles, cranial form, and so on, uh, that variation is, is about comparable at Demonici to what you'd find in, in some of the most dimorphic of the large apes, um, gorillas, for example. So I would say on that basis, we can't rule out Demonici as a single, uh, a single population, a population belonging to a single taxon. Um, as far as the systematics of Homo are concerned, of course, uh, there are a lot of questions. Uh, everything should be reassessed from time to time. One more for you. The fossils from Dominici seem, in many respects, more primitive than African Homo erectus. Is it possible that Homo erectus evolved outside of Africa and moved back in later? Good question. Um, yes, indeed, it is possible. Um, we, we don't understand exactly how all of this came down. Uh, we know that Homo habilis is in the record in Africa, and Africa only. Uh, we know that Homo erectus is in East Africa, uh, certainly by 1.65 million years ago. Uh, the best examples of African Homo erectus, the more complete specimens, are about that age or perhaps a bit later in time. There are some bits and pieces. There is the back end of an occiput, for instance, uh, which is probably earlier, uh, although it's from a lag deposit, and one can't be certain that the date applied to it is, is 100%. Uh, um, Demonisi uh, comes into the record in West Asia at about 1.85, not human material, as I said, but stone tools certainly indicating the presence of a human population. Um, 
just what happened after Homo habilis appeared and evolved and Homo erectus flowered both in Africa uh, for a time and certainly later in the Far East is uncertain. Uh, I, I can't claim to know at this point whether there was a, 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 an anagenetic evolutionary process going on in Africa. I think it's likely Homo habilis to Homo erectus. Uh, Homo erectus then uh, a primitive form of Homo erectus at any rate. The first hominins out of Africa, we see them at Demonisi at 1.85 million years. Uh, the other possibility is that it was an earlier version of Homo that left Africa, uh, probably before 1.8, 1.9 million years ago, for which we have no evidence whatsoever. Um, hominins evolved uh, further in uh, Western Asia, and Homo erectus as an Asian species then moved back to East Africa, for example, uh, as we see it in the Turkana Basin. And indeed, African Homo erectus is more derived, um, more like Homo erectus uh, than are the Demonisi hominins. We have a couple of questions for you. The first one is, overall, are humans getting larger? Overall, are humans getting larger? That, that is an interesting question. Um, you know, first off, as I think was, um, was alluded to, I forget where, perhaps in Dan Lieberman's talk or Herman Ponzer's talk, um, we need to be careful to sort of distinguish between what we might call our lean body mass versus our, our, our fat body mass because we are very, very good at um, putting on fat. And uh, we live in a very calorie-rich environment where, you know, off the dollar menu at McDonald's, you can buy more calories than most hunters and gatherers uh, are able to capture in a day. So um, we're definitely getting larger in the sense of our fat body mass is increasing. But um, I think the record suggests that humans kind of hit their apogee um, in the middle Pleistocene because we have individuals from places like the Cima de los Huesos uh, in Spain. There's an individual there who looks like uh, had a relatively lean body mass of about 93. And here I'm not talking about fat-free body mass. I'm talking about sort of like hunter-gatherer natural body mass probably about 93 kilos. There's an, a middle Pleistocene individual from Bergalkaus in Spain, uh, which also is about that, 91, 93 kilos. Um, and these individuals are not necessarily super tall. They're just relatively wide and stocky. And to me, that's, that's kind of the apex of human body mass, and we've been going down, or body size, and we've been going down since then. Um, you spoke to olive baboons as a possible example for early homo. Why is that? Well, again, there's a suggestion on the basis of the genetic evidence that um, there are hybrid species. I'm not necessarily saying that Homo erectus evolved in a hybrid zone between two species, but um, there is a suggestion that, uh, you know, what happens when... when um, closely related uh, taxa hybridize is that sometimes 
structures get smaller in the the hybrid offspring, the F1 generation. In other cases, structures get larger. In some cases, there are examples of hybrid vigor. In other cases, the hybrids do worse than uh, the, the pure strains of, of the two parent species. So it's very hard to know what can happen in cases of hybridization, but it looks like in the olive baboons that they were particularly successful and that they've been expanding their range and they've been swallowing up variation in smaller populations of baboons that they encountered. And I just think, to me, it's interesting that um, it gets very, very difficult to really nail down who the ancestor of Homo erectus is. I think in some regards, um, Homo habilis makes a great candidate um, ancestor, but there are these other morphological groups out there which share features with Homo erectus that Homo habilis doesn't. Uh, and so I just think it's worth it to, to sort of say, hey, what if we're looking at an olive baboon type situation with Homo erectus? Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> Carol Wood, there are some questions for you. Can I just hijack things for just a moment to address the body size question again? What's really cool, actually, a million and a half years ago in some of the Kubivore isolated postcranials, and actually on the west side of Lake Turkana, too, we have a few bones of individuals that were at least, if you compare them to modern people, for example, maybe 6'3 or so, there's a hand bone, there's a radius, there's distal humeri. There were some really, really, really big people, a million, weirdly big, bigger than most people are today, a million and a half years ago. I don't know why. Um, they seem to be homo. I don't know why they got smaller, why they were so big then, but there's weird variation in body size throughout the fossil record, but now I can listen to the questions I'm supposed to answer. <laughs> Okay, when did childbirth mechanics change from presumably a chimp-like situation to uh, a modern human-like situation necessitating uh, fetal rotation, head rotation? That's a great question. So the question is, when do the mechanics of childbirth change? When you look at great apes, great apes have big pelvic inlets. So the bony hole in the middle of the pelvis is really large. The babies are fairly small. And in terms of getting the baby through, that's not very difficult. Um, when you get to Australopithecus, the pelvis is, in comparison, very short. And it's also very broad. So the idea is the baby has a tighter fit. But since the pelvis is broad, the baby's head fits sideways. It fits sideways all the way through. And there's non-rotational birth. When you get to modern humans, what you see is there's a change in the birth canal from the top of the pelvic inlet to the pelvic outlet. And the baby's head actually rotates, so the baby comes out facing away from the mother, usually, in a normal birth process. And that seems to have happened partly sometime with the increase in brain size from something like an Australopithecus up to something like a modern human, um, that you would change the pelvic shape and you would change rotational birth. So when in the fossil record do you see something like that? Well, you would need a pelvis to see um, birth canal size. We have Australopith pelvises, which seem to be very wide. They all seem to follow sort of a theme. We don't really see in many fossil pelvises until we get to something fairly recent, for example, in China, except for one, which is maybe 0.9 to about 1.4 million years old from Ethiopia, from Gona. It's 
probably homo erectus, although it's unassociated with anything. And we don't know what a Boise eye pelvis looks like, so caveat. But it has a very wide birth canal. also has a very large anterior posteriorly expanded front-to-back birth canal. So the whole thing is big, both from the top and the bottom. And so that individual um, wouldn't have had that sort of sideways non-rotational birth that we see in Australopithecus. So maybe about, about that time, it's a little bit hard to say. Um, the other way that paleoanthropologists infer things about the birth process is to just say if you're getting a really big brain and babies are born with a big brain, that's going to naturally take up more space in the birth canal. So as we see brain size increase, we saw that graph over and over again, we get an exponential rate of brain size increase, that's going to affect the birth process as well. So you have probably multiple factors changing. There have been energetic arguments that affect timing and size of babies during birth. All of those things seem to happen sometime during the genus Homo, probably not at the origin of it nearly as much as sometime during that process after the origin of the genus Homo, leading up to the time we have larger brains. One question is, if sexual isolation takes about five million years, how could growth rates of species vary so quickly? So, uh, yeah, so, um, again, I don't really understand what the question is asking. Um, uh, the, my comment that it takes about five million years on average for a large-bodied mammalian species to really become reproductively isolated, that was based on work that Trent Holliday did, where he looked at um, pairs of closely related um, mammals where we had um, either generally good genetic divergence states um, and he looked whether they were truly in, um, uh, infertile, if they followed Haldane's rule where one sex was infertile, or if they were fully interfertile. Um, and what he found is there was a good amount of variation because I'm sure that there are, are molecular things that happen, like the um, sal- uh, sal- salicylic acid. Did I get that right? No, I didn't anyway. Um, but on average, it takes about 5 million years. So um, how could growth rates of species vary so quickly? Um, that one, I, w- I would basically say that um, it is probably a, um, a trait which is controlled by many, many genes. And when you have traits that have many genes, you've got a lot of underlying variation. Uh, things like stature, going back to body weight again, and, and body size are probably also called by, called, controlled by very many genes. And so those traits actually are very evolutionarily malleable. Um, And I would suspect that's going on with growth rates, although you would probably know better than I do. Just following on from that, the the, the question about are are we getting bigger or smaller, Uh, it's all all of the above. Because your your growth process depends on a number of factors, as I, I was talking about uh, in my talk, and uh, so de- depending on, on the energy cut coming into the system, uh, you're going to grow ra- more, more rapidly or not. And gr- gr- growing up in, in California here in the 1950s, we used to call it the orange juice effect. 
And uh, I'm three inches taller than any other women in my family. So, and that, that's a very good sign of how you can uh, mod, uh, modify the size of uh, populations. And that there is very good evidence that during the agricultural re revolution, there was quite a crash in, in body size because of the, the, the low quality of the diet they were eating. Okay, uh, I, I have a second question. And it says, uh, is it fair to say that primitive man had childlike cognition? How would you describe the cognitive process of the genus Homo? Now, what, 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 what this immediately made me think of was Alan Walker, uh, who used to say, if you stared into the eyes of the Turkana boy, would you say a human staring at you or an animal? And that's a question we really can't answer. And in terms of childlike uh, cognition, we're talking about different species. And uh, probably a good comparison is your dog. And how would you describe the cognition of your dog, who can be tremendously smart in some areas and very stupid in other areas? And the, the, the answer to, to this question is we really don't know. But it's probably more on the animal side particularly when we're talking about the origin of the genus Homo. But I, I, I always used to tell my students, whatever Erectus was doing, they were doing it right, because they lasted for over a, a million years, and they spread throughout the old world. So, you know, if that's smarts, they were very smart. First question... Can humans lower their metabolic costs by reducing brain activity? <laughs> Less worrying, being more meditative. My students try that every day. No, uh, actually, there's not a lot of great data on uh, the energy costs of the brain at different activity levels of sort of thinking versus not. But as far as we can tell, uh, the brain is burning the same number of calories, sort of whether you are intently figuring out a math problem or playing chess or if you're meditating. Um, and that's actually because most of what your brain does is stuff that you're not aware of. Right, so you're, they say you only use 10% of your brain, but that's absurd. You're using all of your brain all the time um, for all the different things that your body's doing and managing. And so uh, just because you turn off or sort of it seems like you turn off the, the, uh, the conscious part of your brain um, or turn that down probably has very little effect on the overall calories uh, spent. It would be very hard to measure that and be sure. So I don't know, but I, I suspect not. Any comments about the uh, the microbiome, the intestinal microbiome and energy metabolism? Yeah, so there's lots of great work now um, looking at other factors that affect um, energy expenditure and obesity, for that matter. And the microbiome, uh, this sort of rainforest that we carry around in our guts, uh, has been a, a topic of a really hot topic recently. Two things. First, None of this stuff on energetics means that you don't have to exercise. <laughs> so people often say, like, well, th this means I don't have to exercise. Nope. Uh, what this means is that exercise is going to do different things to your body than we're kind of maybe taught. It's not going to ramp up your calorie expenditure every day um, necessarily because your body's going to adapt if you start exercising and doing something differently. 
your body's going to adapt to that metabolically. Um, but that adaptation in itself might be really good for your health. And uh, in any case, there's all sorts of non-metabolic things that your that exercise does that it keeps us healthy. So you still have to exercise. You still have to exercise. You still have to exercise. Um, okay, microbiomes. We don't know enough yet about the function of the microbiome in terms of its effect on um, our, our overall metabolism. We know that... Uh, People, well, people who are fat or thin tend to have different microbiomes. Mice who are fat or thin can have different microbiomes. You can make them fat or thin by giving them different microbiomes. So really interesting stuff, and it has to do with metabolism for sure. Exactly how those all things link together, we don't know yet. Thanks a lot. I believe we've completed the question period. So, time for remarks. So, uh, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank those who made this symposium possible, to the symposium chairs, our speakers, our supporters, and to the audience for attending and your great questions. Give yourself a round of applause. The mark of a great Carter Symposium is that it raises more questions than answers, and I think we really did that today. And as Steve pointed out, uh, it's really a mystery. And in fact, all of exploring anthropogeny is like solving a murder mystery. So I'd like to leave you with the words of the great detective. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Yeah, and thank you all very much for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.